Let's take our Bibles, look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, just a few verses this morning, well, to start with anyway. Luke chapter 22, look down at verse number 31. Luke 22, verse 31. The Bible says, quoting our Lord, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt deny me, or thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage here. Lord, we thank you for the testimony, number one, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you also for the testimony of the Apostle Peter. Lord, that how he could be so great in one moment and, Lord, fail and, and be really human. And, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that we can see from this, uh, this text this morning that, uh, that we, too, have a great Savior, like Peter had a great Savior. And we can find strength in that Savior. And, Lord, uh, and it's through prayer that we find the strength. And, Lord, we thank you so much again for who you are. We ask you to bless the reading of your word. Bless this time together. Bless the saints that are gathered in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled this message this morning, Strengthen Thy Brethren. A pretty obvious uh, uh, conclusion from that text there at the end of verse 32. Strengthen thy brethren. But there's a lot that goes into what it means to strengthen our, our brethren. So there's a lot of prayer that goes into these things. So I want to talk to you a little bit about prayer this morning. I almost titled the, the, the message something to do with prayer. But let's look at some of the text here. Look at some of the things the text tells us. I realize... First of all, that Christ predicts Peter's failure in this passage. And this is really no small fact to preach about because we're all going to have those, those moments. But we're going to focus this morning on the fact that <laughs> the Lord of creation, God in the flesh, who created us, you and me, takes the time, even today, to us, us little people, you know, us, us humans, to pray for us. To pray for us. I think that's... And a power, we can probably just ponder on that for a moment to think about how great it is our Creator, who is infinitely greater than we are, decides to pray for us because He loves us. The Lord of creation prays for us. How, the, how, how does that affect us? How does that affect Peter? There is, of course, some opposition to prayer, as Peter very well knows and you very well know. And there's some opposition to the things of God. And I want to take some time also this morning to look at some of the opposition for the purpose of our awareness. Any time I've heard this from a preacher in a, uh, in a church that I was a member of years gone by, anytime you preach on, on Satan, you want to make sure that you're not preaching Satan. Because we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. But the Bible does mention some things about our adversary, about the accuser of the brethren. And we will not dwell there very much this morning because I don't want to give him the light of day. But we're going to talk to, you, talk to us, the Lord talking through me, about what the Bible says about this serpent, the old serpent. So there is some opposition to prayer, some opposition to godly living. In fact, the presence of prayer in this life is one of the ways we combat that opposition. And considering the severity of the opposition, it's, it's wise to know who our enemy is. I mean, no, no soldier today, and, and I would assume in all armies, does, do not go to war without at least some intelligence about what's on the other side. 
And the more you know, the better you are off. And the Bible has given us lots of knowledge about who our enemy is. We see, number one, immediately in the text that Peter has an enemy. We see in the text that God has an enemy. And we see also that this old serpent that started back in Genesis chapter 3 is our enemy as well. And his name is Satan. He's Lucifer, the, cast, the one that's casted out, the accuser of the brethren, the fallen star, all these things that you want to talk about. In fact, the word Satan means accuser. And that's exactly what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Now think about that for a moment. Not a, it's not the main thrust of this text this morning or the message this morning. But when we accuse brethren wrongfully, who are we in, in camp with? That's dangerous. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be like him. We want to be like our Savior. So he accuses the brethren day and night. He accuses us before God, much like his visit to Job there. He came amongst the sons of God there to, to, to test Job, to tempt Job, to, to destroy Job. And he desires to destroy us as well. So again, the title of this message is Strengthen Thy Brethren. But number one in that, in that here is our play on words here. Strengthen thy brethren, the serpent prays. He prays. He seeks. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And that same Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Write, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He is our enemy. He is our enemy. So under the serpent praise, we see that the devil seeks. He seeks for us. He looks for us. He, he desires to destroy us. So he sets out his minions or however you want to say that. And he, and he seeks for us. Jesus told Peter that Satan desired him. And Peter told the brethren later on that Satan seeks to devour us, to destroy us. And as we study our New Testament this morning uh, and even study the life of Christ, you know, one of the things that came to me as I was putting this together, there's a whole lot less gray area in the New Testament when it comes to right and wrong than there is in our life today. You ever realize that? There's a whole lot less gray area in the New Testament than how we deal with how we live out our, our Christian lives. Many things today we chalk up to coincidence or, or maybe a happenstance. I don't think the New Testament writers would have considered them so. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a coincidence. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says that time and chance happen unto us all. But what I am saying is that believers, as believers, we have a real enemy who preys upon us. He is there. You know, if I've been to a couple of war zones and you don't walk out the gate, you know, without being prepared. Right. Because, you know, there's an enemy there. There's somebody there that wants to kill you. And who are we? Are we even more important than that as Christians, when we live in this life, we must be living in Christ because there is an enemy also here that wants to destroy us. We have a real enemy who preys upon us. We must recognize this. And I believe God wants us to recognize this. He wants us to know what our, who our enemy is. You know, it is true that our Savior came to seek and save the lost. There's no doubt about that. But it's also true that Satan is here today to seek and sift believers. That's what he does. That he is the Lord's enemy. He is our enemy. So he's here to seek. In verse 31, we see, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. He, he sought after you. Why? That he may sift you as we, he may sift you. So number, so number letter A here, the devil sifts. 
You might, what in the world does that mean? The Strong's Concordance defines this as to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. Not just a normal temptation or a trying, but for the purpose of overthrowing your faith, to destroy your faith, to put you out of the game, so to speak. You know, Satan cannot take our salvation away, praise God, but he can make a Christian useless if we let him. He can make us useless. And the more we recognize this, the more we will be prepared to fight this, to combat this. In other words, think about these, these questions here. What if we recognized that busyness in our day was Satan's ploy to keep us away from Bible reading? What if that was true? It's probably more often true than not. What if we recognize that a long work week was Satan's ploy to keep us out of the house of God? What if arguments with your spouse or children were designed specifically to frustrate your walk with God? To keep you from the Word of God and to keep you from the house of God? What if Satan operated that way? Could, could that be possible? I think it's very possible. Very, very possible. I mean, do we believe that the devil is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, or do we not? Don't let the devil in your life. Don't let him in there. Stay in the book. Pray often. Get as much church as you can and put your confidence, not in yourselves, as we'll see that Peter tried, but put your confidence in the Lord. Put your confidence in the Lord. You know, and if there's, if there's anyone in the New Testament, I mean, there's plenty of, of folks here that know about, about what it means to be tested and tempted by the devil. But if there's anyone in the New Testament that's recorded that we know a lot about, who also knows a, a lot about the wiles of the devil, it's going to be the Apostle Peter. And Peter realized quickly that he was no match for Satan, but that wasn't his first opinion, was it? He says, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. Peter was like, there's no way that Satan's going to get into my life. I will go to the death. I will go to the cross before I deny you, Lord. When he said that, he had high hopes for himself. Peter was willing to die for Christ. And again, not that it's the main emphasis of our sermon this morning, but think about Peter's confidence. He thought for sure that he was good to go. How often do we think that we're, we're good to go? We're good to go. I mean, this is the Apostle Peter when he told the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Hey, I will go to the cross. I will go to my death. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Did Peter believe that? I think he did. I think Peter did believe that. He thought he was good to go. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for confidence. There's a, there's a place for positive thinking. And I'm not going off on no tangent here. But in and of ourselves, our confidence and our positive thinking can only go so far. We are finite. We need God's help. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. I read somewhere a couple months ago, a couple years ago maybe, that when we fear God, we generally don't fear anything else because we realize who God is. So as believers, our confidence must not ultimately rest in us, but in the Lord. It was a lesson that Peter and the most of us unfortunately learned the hard way. It's like one of those things your, your daddy tells you when you're growing up or your mom tells you when you're growing up, hey, don't do this, it hurts. And sometimes we don't learn until we do it and it hurts. Why? Why, why do we as humans, can't, we just can't take the word of somebody else who's obviously much more wiser than we are most of the time. God is telling Peter here, 
that he's prayed for him. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but look at look at Peter's condition here. Look at the situation that he's in. Remember, he thought he could he thought he was good to go. And he learned that lesson the hard way. And up until this point, Satan had already gotten to Judas. Satan had already turned Judas. And he went for Peter next. And the day that Jesus told him, that was the night. That was in the, right before the Garden of Gethsemane, the very night Peter denies him. It didn't take long for Satan to win, if not within the very hour. But again, Peter was no match for the devil on his own. It seems that the devil got to him in a matter of minutes. I mean, you see the, the way the Bible records us, denial, denial, denial. We don't know how long that is, but it's one night. All, all the while, Christ was enduring our sin. You know, if you think about it, even the mighty angel Gabriel, you know, the guy that, uh, the angel that, that Daniel prayed with there, and he, and he was withheld uh, by the prince there, the prince of Persia, I think it was, by 21 days. And in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, um, the Bible says that even Gabriel didn't dare, dare bring an accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee. So think about this. If Peter was no match, and Gabriel sought, it, sought, sought upon the Lord when dealing with Satan, who are we? Who are we to stand against the devil? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that we are the children of the living God. We have a God in heaven, and we have a God in our hearts. The God. Romans 8, 37 says, We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And as 1 John 4, 4 states, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. That includes the devil. And then one of my favorite sayings recorded in John 16, 33. I love this. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What's our problems? All our problems are in this world. But Jesus has overcome that world. So Satan may prey upon us. He may seek us. He may seek to sift us. But we have a not so secret weapon. We have a God in heaven. A God in our hearts. A God who loves us. And a Savior. Get this now. Look at this. Look back up to verse 32. I have prayed for thee. Satan has desired to destroy you, but I've prayed for thee. This is not just your pastor praying for you. This is not your spouse praying for you. This is God praying for us. So we saw that the serpent prays, and we see that the Savior prays. And again, I love the transition. Hey, Peter. Maybe he didn't say, hey, but that's what I would have been like. Hey, Peter, Satan's coming to get you. But I've prayed for you. But I've prayed for you. What great words to know that our Savior's prayed for us. And Christ didn't just pray for Peter. He prays for us specifically. Speaking to God the Father about the apostles in John 17, 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Friends, that's you and me. Jesus prays for you and me. Can you imagine? In heaven, there he is. Hey, Lord, I want to lift up Brother Shannon to you today. I want to lift up Brother Axel to you, Brother Jeff, Brother Billy. I want to lift them up to you, my Heavenly Father, our Savior. As a man, mind you, in the throne room of God. All God, all man, praying for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He ever liveth. Now, you could take that two ways. He, as long as he lives, he makes intercession for us. Or the purpose that he lives is to make intercession for us. Now, God is God without us, without you or me. But I love that passage. He ever liveth to make, it, to make intercession for us. 
the Savior prays for us. You know, whatever we go through in this life as believers, we should find comfort in the fact that Jesus prays for us. In fact, James 5, 16, y'all know the passage, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Think about that applied to our Savior. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Was he righteous? Absolutely. Does he have effectual prayers? Absolutely. So think how much his prayers avail. Our Savior's prayers avail. They avail much. But as we talked about this past Thursday, maybe you're thinking here right now, well, how come this didn't happen? Well, how come my, my mother-in-law is not saved yet? How come this? Certainly he's praying for them. He's praying for us. And he hears our prayers. But again, as we talked about on Thursday, God certainly moves according to his own will, according to his own prerogatives. But he doesn't force his hand. He doesn't force our hand. Remember why he couldn't do miracles in his hometown of Nazareth? Right? Lack of belief. The creator God in his own hometown, amongst people he created, amongst people he loved, the Bible says he couldn't do miracles because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. And I think prayer works in a similar way. You ever wonder why your prayers are not answered? Especially in the way that you believe that are in the will of God? Well, sometimes we're way off. A lot of times we're way off. A lot of times we're praying and we just don't know what we're praying about. We think it's in God's will, but we don't know. Sometimes we need to repent. Sometimes our heart's not right. But other times, there is a flat-out rebellion in the heart of the person you're praying for, which is probably part of the prayer. Think of, think of the prodigal son. His father certainly played, prayed for him many years, no doubt with tears, but the full effect of that prayer wasn't released until the son repented. Until the son repented. I believe the father could have wasted all his goods. The father could have sent his other son to go get him, even at the loss of his other son. But the prodigal son would have never came until he came to himself and realized what the father had done. What a picture of us today. God the father has sent his only begotten son, but it's all for not individually until we realize the greatness of what he's done for us. Again, God works according to his own will, but it's clear that prayer works the best when those who are prayed for are also living according to the will of God. Prayer works the best when the people who are prayed for are living in the will of God. And again, in this verse, we see some specifics about Christ's prayer for Peter. We see three desired outcomes here for Peter from the Lord through prayer. Number one, we see a prayer of faith, a prayer of faith. You know, whatever, whatever measure of faith that Peter had at this point, it was pointing him to the cross. Uh, we are not told specifically when Peter believed, although I think he's a believer right now. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. But we have that great confession. And that great confession back in Matthew 16, thou art the Son, uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So think about that. And what's Jesus' response to that? Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, uh, to you but my, uh, my Father in heaven. So I believe he was saved. At any rate, Jesus prayed for his faith not to fail which is a clear reference to Peter's future denial foretold by Christ in the next few verses. And as we have read, what, it, what was true of Christ's prayer for Peter is true of his prayer for us. He prays that our faith does not fail. God does not want our faith to fail. 
Think about that again. I want you to picture the tabernacle there in the Old Testament. You have the Holy of Holies. Maybe we'll put, put that in the overthrow, uh, overflow room back there, you know, with a big veil across there. This is, you know, the, 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 the holy place. And then behind us would be the outer court. You know, in here where the priest would come, you had the showbread and all those things. Behind that veil, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest, one man, one time a year, would go inside that holy of holies. Now, the Hebrews chapter 9, I think it is, tells us that the earthly tabernacle is a replica of what's really in heaven. There's the real holy of holies in heaven. There's the real throne room of God. And nobody has been, no man has ever been to that throne room of God before the Lord Jesus Christ. When the veil rent, God didn't walk through the earthly tabernacle, as Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. He walked through the, the real deal, if you will, the heavenly tabernacle and sat down. And sat down. Get that now. As a man. Not, not just as God, but as man, he sat down. We as, a, as men have people, have a man on the inside, so to speak. Isn't it great to know that he is our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? And he's there, and he is there to pray for us. He ever liveth to make intercession. What, what a Savior we have. So when the accuser of the brethren comes before God to slander our name in Christ, he seeks to destroy us. Jesus says, nope, he's one of mine. He is one of mine. Go away. Go away. He ever liveth to make intercession. He doesn't want our faith to fail. He intervenes in here. And I believe that we have the ability to live a sinless life. Not us, but the God in us. But the problem is we don't yield to that. We don't let Christ live our life through us. So Christ prays that our faith doesn't fail. But not only is there a prayer of faith here in this text, we also see a prayer of salvation and sanctification. Salvation and sanctification. I realize that Jesus says, when thou art converted, as to refer to an inevitable conclusion, as in Peter will be converted, I want to just say that it's not inevitable for us. It's not inevitable that salvation comes to us. It's here, but we must have to accept it. It must be something done on purpose. And this conversion specifically here for Peter may refer to, probably it refers to, his coming back to Christ after such a failure in faith. Jesus telling him before he even fails. But I think both salvation and sanctification are applicable here. See, Peter would later write, in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish. So we know that God prays for our salvation. In fact, He gave us life for our salvation. He gave us life on that old rugged cross. His life for our life. And just to be clear, the cross was necessary. The cross was necessary because our sins are real. The cross is real. Our sins separate us from God. Anyway, in other words... Any unforgiven sin that we have has destroyed the connection that we have with our Creator. Think about this. If you've ever committed one sin, one wrong thought, one misspoken word, not to mention the sin inherited from our fathers, any sin without Christ makes you God's enemy. Listen, I don't want to be an enemy of our Creator. So God sent His only begotten Son, and when we trust Christ as our Savior... When we accept that payment made on our behalf, eternal life rests upon us. 
God, the Holy Father, dwells within us. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. And just to be clear again, it's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus plus baptism. I ask many people sometimes, hey, do you, do you know the Lord? Well, I was baptized when I was whatever. I don't care. I, I do care about you being baptized. I want you to follow the Lord. But they're not tied together. Baptism is separate. Baptism shows. It's like a wedding ring. If I take it off, which I don't wear it because my fingers get kind of big, so I take them off. But I'm still married. I mean, my wife didn't look at my ring. Oh, you're not married today? That's what baptism is. I know you can't get unbaptized, but it's just a picture of what's on the inside. So it's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus church attendance. It's not Jesus plus anything that we do. It is Christ alone. Christ alone. So if you're trusting in good works, and this is not just for, for new visitors. This is not just for young Christians. This is for old Christians. As a matter of fact, sometimes it applies more to us if we're trusting in our own good works for a right relationship with God or missing the boat. We're missing the boat. Our position doesn't move because of Christ. No amount of good works will ever satisfy the wrath of God. We're not saved by anything of our own merit. Peter later writes, Peter again in 1 first, in first Peter later writes that we are not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Trust Christ today. Trust Him in your salvation and trust Him in your sanctification. Jesus says when thou art converted, again it eventually uh, it applies to Peter's eventual repentance. Again, I believe Peter already had a knowledge of salvation. He didn't know all the things that he would know, but I think he had a grasp of it enough. Matter of fact, when we see John, uh, chapter 20, when them both run into the tomb, John outruns them. Y'all know their story. The Bible tells us that John believed. It never tells us later on that, that Peter believed. It, it does say the apostles denied them, but I think that's again a failure of faith. So I think when thou art converted is a reference to Peter's full turning back to God. After that failure. After that failure. And here's the application. Now, it could mean that he's, he's not saved. I, I get all that. But the application is still, is still relevant. It's still applicable. Because I believe this is exactly where many Christians are today. It's what we need to do. We need to be converted. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about turning back to God. God is praying for His people to turn back to Him. What is that in 2 Chronicles 7, 14? If my people shall... What's that? Humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and turn to God. All the, my people, He says. Not the world. Not, not the world turning to me. My people. And that verse is applicable today. It's not a promise to us like it was to Solomon, but it is a principle that we can hold true. We must turn to God. And I know there are a lot of differences between us and Peter, but let's take a snapshot of Peter's life here real quickly. Matthew 16, 16, again, he says, he confesses, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And later on in the book of Acts, we see God being used by, or God using Peter greatly at Pentecost, and even in the salvations of 3,000 and 5,000 and so forth. But in the middle of those two events, we see Peter... What I like to refer to as the fire barrel, standing outside the, the priestly place there. And, you know, the, the people coming to him and he's, he's denying Christ. So we see Peter with the great confession. We see Peter at the Pentecost. But in the middle, we see Peter at the fire barrel, denying he ever knew Christ. You see, if we take Peter's great confession as a point of salvation, 
and we take his life and acts as proof of sanctification, and we superimpose his life upon our life, where are we at in that timeline? Am I making sense here? So you're saved, I, I trust. Are we living a Pentecost-style life? It's totally in for God, sold out, or have you want to look at that, all in? Or are we by the fire barrel of our lives? Where are we in that timeline? Unfortunately, it seems as if many Christians are still there. They're still there by the fire barrel of defeat. Oh, we're saved. We, have, we had a great moment of confession in our life. We accepted Christ as our personal Savior. But somewhere along the line, we yielded to Satan's sifting. And now we're right back to the fire barrel. Get away from the fire barrel. Still living there. And sometimes even content to be around the fire. We struggle with what's right and wrong. With, to even know what's right and wrong. We struggle with a full commitment to God. We, we struggle with seems that, things that seem so simple sometimes. But all we got to do is start walking towards Christ. Make a hard right in your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a hard right. And again, wherever we are in this, know that Jesus prays for you. He prays for you at salvation. He prays for you at Pentecost, if you will, your sanctification. And he prays for you when you're sitting by the barrel. Not even thinking about him. I was there once and content to be there. I don't know what brought us. I know the Lord did much prayer, much prayer from my parents, much prayer from those involved in my life and much prayer for my wife. Now, she didn't say these words, but she could have said, get away from the fire barrel and walk to God. Now, it's not in my walking, but it's in his grace. It is mercy that he takes us back. And you know what? God always takes us back. If you get air on your lungs, God will take you. God will take you back. Turn to God. Wherever we are, he prays for you. He prays for us. He prays for your faith. He prays for your soul. And then look at verse number 32 again. He says, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. We have a prayer of strength, a prayer of strength. You know, it's implied that strength came with Peter's conversion. When we turn to God, we get that strength. There will be no strengthening, strengthening through Peter without strength in Peter. And we know that his strength is not something or our strength, spiritual strength, is not something we can develop. It's not something I'm going I'm to be good today. I'm going to live for the Lord today. These are good things. These are positive things. We should do those things. But how? it's more about surrendering than it is about doing. If that makes any sense. When we yield ourselves to God, that's when we're strong. Yield our strengths and our weaknesses to Him. You know, Peter would eventually take this prayer very seriously. I wonder if he was sitting by the fire barrel, he remembered God saying... When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I doubt it. But I, I, would, I would guarantee that he was, when he was preaching up there at Pentecost, or maybe in the, in the preparation for that, he remembered. He remembered. I think he took it very seriously. Yes, he failed, but he came back. He made a hard right. And there are such a contrast between Peter before and Peter after. Listen, we talk much about the old life and the new life. The not-so-eternal life will... Not eternal life with God anyway. The, non, the unbelieving life. And then we have the believing life. And i got to be honest with you. I, I tell my children, all that, are, are those who are not saved, it is better on this side. I've lived that side. We've all lived that way. And it's better on this side. And we, we focused on that, that before Christ and after Christ in our life. 
But I think as we get older and, and Christian in our, in our Christian walk with the Lord, we must also realize that post-salvation, there's unfortunately some before Christ and some after Christ. Does that make sense? So Christ didn't leave us, but we kind of left him. We kind of jump shipped a little bit and he's not the captain anymore. And we're going through these rough seas and there's, there's water in the boat and we're drowning. We don't know what to do, but we need to get back in the boat with the Lord. He's still there. He's probably just right alongside of you. Again, Peter thought he was good to go. He went to the fire barrel in confidence. He went to the fire barrel in his own strength. Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. What a picture of us trying to live the Christian life by ourselves. And he didn't last a day. He didn't last a few hours in his own strength. But after an encounter with the resurrected Christ and his realization that his strength is made perfect in weakness, Peter became a spiritual giant. You know, we look at Peter, we look at Paul, we look at these, these great men of yesteryear from, from D.L. Moody to William Carey to Adonai Judson, all these fellows here, all these missionaries who gave their lives. And we look at them as great men, and we should. But the same God's still here today. God still can use men today to make them great. The problem is we want to be great. None of those men would tell you I'm a great man, but they would all tell you I served a great God. Let's just serve him. And see what God can do through us. I mean, look what God did with David. Look what God did with Peter. Peter denied him. I mean, could you imagine? Would any of us deny Christ today? I mean, think about that. If you're a face-to-face, -face, you just left the Savior. Praying probably with the Savior. The Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there were the three. The stones throw away from the prayer of tears. And then as the sun was coming up, I don't know him. I don't know him. You know, I remember when I was... 25 or so, and I was having a conversation with my brother, and he, he blasphemed the Lord. He wouldn't do that today, I don't believe. He's, he's in church and doing all the right things. Um, but he blasphemed the Lord, and I called him out on it. Now, I wasn't living right. He said, well, you don't, you don't believe in God anyway, do you? And I still remember it today. I said, no. I was a Christian. I, my heart sank right there. I didn't tell him that. I still never told him that. Matter of fact, this is the first time I've told anybody. But I was immediately convicted. Are you kidding me? You just, all that I've done for you, and you can't even admit that I exist before your brother. Peter did it three times. And he became a spiritual giant. Not because of anything Peter has, but because of the greatness of God. He, st he wasn't perfect. He still made mistakes. But I don't believe he ever went back to the fire barrel. Never. Gone. I will never go back to that place of doubt. I will never go back to that place of nominal service or no service. Peter was strengthened. He was in all the way to the end. And because he was strengthened, he strengthened others. And before I go a little bit further, we need Christians today. I know I keep harping on it. We need Christians that are, that are real, not nominal, completely sold out to God, all in to God. And don't worry about what the world says. This world is coming to an end. And there's some evidence that this world has come to the end today, depending on how you look at things. But it's always been coming to an end. Our Savior is never coming to an end. Let's invest in Him. Let's invest in an eternal place, not in something that's not eternal. Be all in. Be all in. P 
Peter was all in and he was strengthened. He, he yielded himself to God and God used him greatly. God can still use us greatly. I promise you. And because Peter was strengthened, he strengthened others. He lived a victorious life for Christ and God used his life. God still uses Peter's life and his words to strengthen believers today. In 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I wonder, while, while Peter was writing those words, knowing that the afflictions that you're dealing with, brethren around the world are dealing with those same afflictions. I wonder if he'd had those thoughts in his mind when he stood by the fire barrel, maybe it had been a different outcome. But Peter knew those trials. So he's telling the world, listen, you're going through some trials, you're going through some hard times, but men have gone before you and made it because God was with them. Surrender to God, knowing that these same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So he knew and understood the trials of this life. He knew how to recognize spiritual warfare. He knew how to recognize spiritual warfare. And we, we kind of we began with that, with that concept of, of recognizing our enemy. You know, if we, we live in a very porous world, I guess you'd say, you know, over in seas, you go to a, a combat deployment, stuff like that. You go out. You, it's, it's not like World War II. You don't know who the bad guys are. You know, it's not like any other war. Well, it's, it's getting more and more like spiritual warfare because you don't know who the bad guys are. And sometimes we're even the bad guy because we're not living right for the Lord. But we must recognize these things. We must recognize that we have a real enemy. I have preached at a a, a church one time. It was packed. Two or three hundred people in there. Well, more like 120, I think. I'm on camera. i got to be honest. So a little bit over 100, I think. And I preached there. I won't mention the name of the church. But it it was like preaching right here. I couldn't get anything out. And I felt defeated. I, I walked down and I, I apologized to the Lord and I apologized to my wife. I, I just felt, I'm sorry you had to sit and listen to that. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, really? And I talked to the pastor and he shared with me some difficulties they were having. I'm like, yeah, I didn't know what they were, but I know they were there. But here's, here's the reason I'm saying that. If I'd have realized that then from the pulpit that I was dealing with a spiritual warfare, it had been different type of combat, different tools, different things like that. And I think that's God's point here this morning. Recognize that we are in a fallen world. We have an enemy. And Peter understood these trials and he wants us to understand those trials. We've been reminded this morning that we have an enemy. We've been reminded that our Savior prays for us. And I think the only conclusion that I could come up with, I'm sure there's a number of them, is number three, that the saints press on. The serpent prays, the Savior prays, and the saints press on. How do we press on? We press on through strength. Through strength. We press on many ways, but I'm going to give you three things here real quickly from from the Bible here. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter, which is exactly where we'll be next uh, next week. We're going to study. uh, If you got the email, you'll see that uh, our next scripture immersion for the month of August is going to be in the book of 1 Peter. It's about five, or it is five chapters, a little shorter than the book of James. Take you about 15, 20 minutes to read it. But be immersed in that book as we, as we preach through this book uh, here this month. Uh, so I guess I can probably turn there. 1 Peter, 
Uh, I want you to look at chapter 1. Chapter 1. I'm going to read a, cu a couple of verses here, beginning in verse number 1. I want, you to, I want you to capture something. I'm kind of read ahead of myself here. Capture the excitement of the Apostle Peter. Remember, he just went through all those things. We know a little bit about the life of Peter. His first letter. This is his first time to sit down and put ink to paper or a feather to paper or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. But look at verse number one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance uncorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now think about this for a moment. If we were writing a letter, even to a Christian brother, or maybe, maybe I was writing a letter to Onsbot Baptist Church, you know, generally, hey John, this is Bill. Let me tell you some things. Peter makes it a point, six verses, to tell me how great our Savior is. How great the things that he's done. He's excited. And I think, right, how do we press on? The point I'm trying to get here is that we rekindle what God's given us rekindle, stir up that salvation, that gift that's in us. Be excited about what God's done for us. And I know we go in ebbs and flows with our excitement, but let it, but never get over the fact of what this passage says, of what Christ did for us. God became a man. That man became our sin. He took that sin to the cross, buried that sin in the grave, came forth without the sin, and we just put our faith in Him. And we ain't got to do all those things. We don't, have to do, we don't have to live that life. We just accept what He's given to us. Rekindle our faith. God, through Jesus Christ, has done great and mighty things for us. And Peter's letter is how God used him to strengthen the brethren. So how do we press on? How do we get strengthened? We rekindle what's going on. We remember that what is going on right here has nothing to do. It doesn't even compare to what Christ did for us. It doesn't even come close. He opens with this letter of excitement. Filled with some of the great things God has done for us. Again, he could have just said it. Hi, I'm Peter. Let's talk. But he didn't. He didn't. He bragged on his Savior. He boasted in Jesus Christ. So how do we press on again? We rekindle what God's done for us. Stir it up. Don't get over the fact that God saved you. And then look at verse number 6. Verse number 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Why are we rejoicing? Because of all those things he just told us about. So how do we press on? We rejoice. We rejoice when the times are good. We rejoice when the times are bad. We rejoice always. Rejoice forevermore. First Thessalonians tells us. Rejoice forevermore or evermore. We rekindle the flame of salvation and then we rejoice. What is rejoicing? First it's rejoicing to the Lord. But I think we can also rejoice to others. Don't keep salvation to yourself. Don't keep it here. Tell the world what God has done for you. Think of this statement. If the greatness of your salvation was measured by your rejoicing, how great would it be? If the greatness of your salvation is measured by your rejoicing, how great is your salvation? Rekindling, rejoicing, and then number, a letter C there, reminding. Look at verse 6 and 7. 
He says, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that a trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, that it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We remind each other that this is not our home. This is not our home. Keep reminding yourself that we have a home that's better than us. We have a home where there's no trials. We have trials here. The moment we're in a trial, we're frustrated. Remember, we, we have a home in heaven. We have somewhere else. We have a home that was the, a mansion over the hilltop and all those songs that point to heaven. Remind yourself of this. This is not home. We have a better place. What's that? Paul says, I have a desire to leave, but I have a desire to stay. Not just to stay because of the earthly pleasures, to be a benefit to other people. That should be our only reason to stay. We're going home one day. Our trials are not always proof that you did something wrong. They're not always proof that someone wronged you. But it is proof that Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet. It's, pro it's proof that Christ hasn't appeared yet. But when he does, when those clouds roll back like a scroll, when, when glory descends and Jesus meets us in the air. Look at the last part of that verse. May we be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The only way we do that is by pressing on, rekindling this within us, rejoicing what God has done for us and reminding us that Jesus is coming back. We have a home in heaven. We have a home in heaven. And when all these things occur, we can be strengthened. And I'll close with this verse in Galatians 6, 9. Paul writes, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. Let's pray.